You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was add 10 gallons? Add 10 gallons. My first thought was we got to put active on Yeah, great. Trucks on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. What's going on, everybody? This is the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Just in case you forgot, we're still here. Uh, It's been a minute since we put out some podcast content for you guys, so hopefully you're following along on our Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube channel where we put a couple things up here and there. But as far as getting into the podcast studio to record an episode, uh, we apologize that we've been out, but to make it up for you, we have probably one of the best interviews that we've had to date, so stay tuned for that. First, got to get to the boys, see how they're doing. Paul, what's going on, man? Oh, so glad to be back. This is absolutely my favorite thing that we do. Uh, for the people who see these clips today from this episode, they'll see my uh, my bedroom, so that's always nice. The bad news is I don't have fancy uh, microphone to talk into, so I hope you guys can hear me clearly. Yeah, you're coming in good so far. Um, Joey, what's going on, man? You doing all right? Yeah, man, I'm doing good. Glad to be home. As fun as it is to hang out with you guys for the past four weeks, I'm glad <laughs> to be home. Yeah, sounds good, man. And and to elaborate on that for the folks at home, uh, Paul, Joey, and myself, we've been in the midst of a testing program that has us making over 100 different uh, mixes to classify and kind of determine the benefits of what ActiGel can bring to manufactured sand. So we got about eight different sources. We got a couple of different types of cement, and uh, we're, we're trying to make it work for a customer. Um, but that entails making a lot of cylinders, doing a lot of testing. Um, so that's what's, that's what's kind of taken up the last three weeks of our time, among other things. In the middle of all that, I've been to Seattle. Paul's been to Seattle. Joey's been, well, Joey lives in Tennessee, so he's had to come up to Baltimore uh, each of the last three weeks in the midst of uh, him and his wife uh, in the middle of uh, bringing a a second child into the world. So I'm sure that that adds some complications as well. But everything all right at the the house, Joey? Yeah, everything's good so far. Um, Nothing much to report as far as the house is concerned, but everybody's doing pretty good. Cool, man. Cool. Well, that's good. No news is good news, but in the world of concrete, there is there's plenty of news. And um, let's start with you, Joey. I mean, a lot of people have a lot to say about the, the current economic climate 
and uh, there's some uncertainty there. But at the same time, ain't ain't nothing slowed down, especially in your neck of the woods. Nashville is one of the fastest growing cities in the country, and continues to be so. I think they were they had that status even before COVID, and now with the the very uh, the very friendly laws that you have down there in the great state of Tennessee, that kind of accelerated the amount of people moving into that area. So, tell us about the the economic climate as it pertains to construction. Yeah, much to the dismay of all of us that live around Nashville and have lived here for all of our life, more people are moving here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so construction is having to keep up with that. And uh, I came across, it was actually an interview on one of our local news stations, and uh, they were talking with a, uh, a new general contractor, new as in within the last couple of years. He's a CIM grad, and uh, his name is Reggie Polk. And he actually started Polk and Associates Construction, uh, LLC. And they were doing this interview with him on uh, one of the local news stations. And he had a lot of insight on uh, Metro Nashville construction market. Uh, they mentioned building codes and all kinds of stuff. So I'll go through that. Uh, the first interesting thing that they mentioned was uh, the housing market. And more so in the realm of apartments and condos and stuff like that in Nashville. And I was with my wife. We were at the, uh, we were at the baby doctor uh, yesterday and they have this big window and you could see all over downtown Nashville. And I remember just sitting in that chair without even turning my head. And I counted eight cranes in the Nashville skyline. And uh, we got to talking about it and uh, it was interesting then finding this interview they mentioned that for every 100 existing apartments in Nashville, there's going to be 13 more built this year. So that's pretty significant. And there's going to be at least 11,000 apartments or units, they said, added in 2022 alone. So that's the cause for all the cranes in the skyline. They're building houses or they're building places for people to live because people are still flooding into this place. Um, Metro Nashville codes, they issued 14,600 building permits in 2021 alone. Now, of course, that ranged from everything from, you know, Joe Blow adding a deck, you know, on his house, you know, there within the city limits up to, you know, these multi-million dollar projects, the condos, the skyscrapers and everything else that they're building. But all that totaled up was five and a half billion dollars uh, just in Nashville alone. So... Nashville's still growing, you know, again, for, uh, to the dismay of all of us that try to stay away from Nashville. Uh, but it's it's the place to be, you know. Got plenty of places to work, uh, lots of to do. So it's uh, it's the place these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, they made themselves a, an economical climate that is attractive to people, you know leaving other other climates that may not be as economically attractive and uh we can get into politics if you want to but it's already going to be a long enough show so we'll pass that up this <laughs> yep, time yep no we're staying out of that but i tell you what we'll get into is i hope mr pope is getting paid because i've got an article here from the construction com, and it says that slow payments in the year of 2021 uh cost the construction industry 136 billion dollars that's billion with a b boys and those slow payments that number that is a 36 percent increase in slow payments over the year before so these guys are just 
not getting the money from their people. Uh, 86%, as you can imagine, 86% of GCs said that payment delays directly affect their project deadlines in the year of 2021. And 67% of subs have decided not to bid on a project if the GC or the owner has a reputation of slow payments. So that's a lot of people out there that are dead set on, hey, if I, if I even hit, get wind that you're not paying on time, you know, I'm out of here. You know, you know, we talk about that stuff, the labor markets, you know, sky high, they're having to pay, if you can find somebody, paying sky high prices for these skilled trades. And now you hear, you know, these guys aren't getting paid. And as far as the company's not getting paid what they're owed. And so then, you know, we've talked about on here, like, how are they making it? Like, what are these guys doing? How are you surviving that long with, without getting paid? And so they ran a survey, the same, uh, same site, and, you know, 39%, that's it. Only 39% of companies are able to cash flow their way through this. That mm. Only 39% of companies have enough retained earnings uh, to get them through these slow payment periods. An almost equal amount of people, 36%, had to take out an extra line of credit from the bank. In order to keep these projects moving, another 22% said credit card. And then sadly, 21%, that's right, boys, one in five of these general contractors, the owners are having to dip into either personal savings or their retirement accounts in order to keep these businesses afloat. Just absolutely abysmal, and I hope people get this back on track. That 39%, I wonder if that number is declining. You know, you have just that small percentage of people that can cash flow i'd be interested to know if that number was trending up or trending down like if it's going to fall like well into the 30s you know for 2022 yeah probably i mean we're going to have an economist on here um one that some people here may have read he's been cited in a lot of stuff construction related he's an expert on that he actually came in december for an interview but we had to cancel because we had too many customers that uh, were having you know, five alarm fire things that we had to go take care of. So we had to actually cancel on him. So uh, he will be back uh, and he's going to be great. We're going to hit him with every economy question we can have. So save this one for him, Joey. So I don't have to sit here and speculate like a moron. He, you know, a guy who, who lives in this and runs a company advising the White House, you know, is going to come on here and, and, and school us. I, I couldn't be more excited for an upcoming guest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's fun. Well, it's funny because this guest on this podcast, our interview is like an hour and a half long. We had to trim it down because we just went into everything. You know, the, our economist, it may be even longer because yeah. of all the questions we're going to have. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, what saved our current guest is the fact that he had a hard out because had he not had to leave at 6 o'clock p.m., we'd still be talking to him. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing I do want to – bring up to our economists that we'll have on here in the near future and, and something that like, kind of scares me is that you have these GCs uh, that that can't cash flow their next job but fortunately enough for them um, debt is cheap these days it's it's cheap to go out and and borrow money uh, but I've read several places that the Fed is going to increase interest rates not once, not twice, but possibly even three times this year. And when it gets to when they try to curb the massive inflation that we're seeing, 
which in my opinion is worse than they're actually reporting. When they try to curb that by raising the interest rates, then all of a sudden that extra cash, that debt isn't so easy to finance. So more and more companies and even private borrowers, they're not going to borrow that money to keep their job afloat. Well, then what? Do you have more people dipping into their personal? Do the more people dipping into the 401? Or do you have more people putting a for sale sign up in the front yard? Dude, dude, I don't know. And on top of that, you know, the Fed, I, I actually read a report they were thinking about four yeah. different increases this year. Um, I mean, that's just, I mean, we'll see what Jerome Powell says when he comes out here in a few days. But, uh, you know, the Fed, their balance sheet rose from like four and a half trillion in assets to nine trillion in assets so yeah. when the fed buys something they're essentially, they're essentially injecting liquid cash into the marketplace now they're like oh well maybe we should sell off some of this stuff to who yeah who, who are you selling nine trillion in assets to and if you do that then the banks that are going to buy those assets from the fed now don't have money to lend to businesses so you know you you tell me how that's going to go brother well we can't we're just talking out of our you know rear ends here we, we know just that we know just a little but we'll have that economist on he can maybe maybe he can scare us straight right because he's also written about another issue and that's jobs right we talk about here like hey we can't find nobody there's help wanted signs everywhere but you look at like the number of jobs that have come back and it's weird because like the unemployment rate is so low it's like 3.9 percent but the number of jobs added don't equal that. So either so one of the numbers is wrong. Either they're actually adding 600,000, 800,000 jobs or the percentage is wrong and unemployment's really like 7%. It can't be both. The numbers aren't matching up. So something's getting lost in translation. He can help define that for us as well. Yeah, that'll be exciting and, and certainly interesting. We can't wait for that. But as, as far as money goes, I mean, now that we're talking about money, uh, money also drives uh, another aspect within our industry, and that is regulation. Money drives regulation, and the the general nature of us as human beings, we are more reactionary than proactive, for sure. I want to get into the South Florida condo collapse from last summer. Uh, it it kind of faded away from the news for a while. Uh, it's It was in June or July, I believe, uh, in the middle of the summer, but you know, here we are a half a year or more later, and it's still in the news. You just have to dig for it a little bit. It's not quite in the headlines, but it it really brought up a a dire need in South Florida for programs that inspect these buildings, these multifamily, three-story or more buildings, uh, more frequently and more stringently. Uh, and unfortunately, in order for that to be brought to life, uh, 98 people lost their life uh, in, in South Florida. So our condolences and, and thoughts go out to those people uh, because we don't want the, the human aspect to be lost here as I transition and start talking numbers. But the Miami-Dade Circuit Judge, uh, Michael Hansman is his name, uh, just this week, uh, the 21st rather, he urged all sides to work towards a mediated settlement um, as you have numerous claims arising right now. And he said, end quote, uh, put forth a Herculean effort to settle these claims if possible, end quote, because the court is not going to be able to handle it. They predict right around $100 million in legal costs for Florida in the wake of these condo collapse. And it's also, 
It's also important to mention that uh, this condo that collapsed in Miami-Dade County, they were in the midst of their 40-year structural review when it happened. And that's really what's going to trigger a lot of the federal and state investigations, and that's where your lawsuits are going to be coming from. And it's important to note that because right now, under the program that they have in South Florida, uh, building owners and property managers, um, they're forced to go through a recertification process after 40 years. So that building can stand whether it's uh, properly maintained or not properly maintained. They don't have to go through the recertification process until it turns 40 years old. Uh, and, you know, this condo was 40 years old when it collapsed. Now, why is that important? Well, in the state of Florida, there are a half a million condos in Florida alone, 500,000 that are between the ages of 40 and 50 years old as we speak. Um, and then furthermore, there's 100,000 condominium complexes that are over the age of 50. So obviously you have a Senate committee, a Senate Community Affairs Committee in the state of Florida. Uh, they met this Tuesday and a chairwoman by the name of Jennifer Bradley is a representative of Fleming Island, Florida. She said, we have to do better uh, and we have to kind of revise this. And right now, there's no requirement that any building under the age of 40 needs to be inspected. So among the proposed changes, uh, any building over three stories gets inspected at 20 years as a minimum and then every seven years after that subsequently. Any building over the age of 20 currently would have to get immediately inspected and they give them until December 31st of 2024 to get that done. So that's what Florida's doing um, as, as a reaction to the condo collapse in South Florida. And then the legal proceedings are set to take place in March of 2023. So that's the update on that. I know when it happened last summer, we talked a lot about uh, what went wrong and we theorized about, you know, what what could have caused, you know, a catastrophic event like that. But nevertheless, it happened. And those are those are the kind of steps that Florida is trying to take moving forward to make sure that it doesn't happen again. One last thing to end on that, it always comes back down to cost, right? So you have a half a million condos that need to be, you know, investigated and certified immediately, right? The inspections in Miami-Dade County can run from $2,000 to $4,000 for small commercial buildings and twenty dollars to $40,000 for your larger 15- to 20-story condo structures. So um, this bill needs to clear two more committees before it goes to the Senate. It is expected to go to the Senate uh, at before the end of Q1, so they're moving pretty quick on it. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if this legislation has any teeth. A lot of times, in my opinion, things get passed through that, you know, just for the sake of passing it through. And, I mean, you got to get an inspection, but you don't have to do what the inspection says. And that, that to me, is where, you know, we really have to be. Is like, if you're not going to follow through and get the repairs that the inspection says you need, you know, then what, what's the penalty there? Because that's what happened in this collapse that we're talking about, that this, you know, sort of set all this in motion, is they got a report from this architect that said now albeit it was buried like seven pages deep but buried in there said oh by the way 
there's massive structural damage. We can see it on the first floor of the parking garage and there's no, no way to know just how far this extends. But even that, like the repair on that was like a million or four million. I mean, something crazy, millions of dollars to repair the structural damage they could see. That doesn't include what was possibly underneath there. But so, so even if they get this inspection, the condo themselves, the, the hotel, whoever, these people have to follow through and actually do these repairs. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the call to action or, or the force to action uh, will be the most important part of this bill, uh, in which they didn't go into detail about the overall regulations, like how, when you need to be certified and inspected, and then the recurring inspections after that. I mean, that's that's important. That's a start. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Paul. The important part is, well, now what, right? So, you know, the inspector found four things wrong, three things that are critical. Now what? Do we do we condemn your building until you fix them? Yeah, I would, especially now. I mean, it might it might be it might be extra to put it in layman's terms, I suppose, but you know, now you have this this big tragic haunting event in the back of everyone's mind yeah. um, that'll hopefully force a little bit more action and a little bit more accountability. Well, just as an example of another industry agency that comes in and will may not shut you down, but they'll make it hurt. You know, the EPA will come in and if you're violating something, you've got something trickling into a, a, a stream nearby or whatever, they'll come in and they'll say, all right, for every day that this is not cleaned up, it's $25,000 a day. For every day it's not cleaned up, you better get to work cleaning it up. Now that that'll get somebody in gear right there. And we're talking about, you know, negligent buildings. I mean that there's nothing scarier than that and and normally I'm not a fan of regulation. I you know, I think people should do their best and you know, dollars kinda move toward credibility. Uh, but in this case but in this case we're talking about, you know, this is our world, man. This is concrete construction. That's the world we live in and take a lot of pride in. And if, if these guys were doing some shady stuff back in the day, let's get in there and let's make sure that they're uh, they're going to fix it now. Right. I was amazed to hear or how old some of those condos and apartment buildings and stuff were. You said between 40 and 60 years old, you know, 60 being on the higher end, of course, uh, for a handful of those. But it that was amazing to me. And then after you said that, I Googled the average age of the residents of Florida and it's 42. Mm. So you got a lot yeah. of these uh, condos and apartments and everything that are older than most of the people in Florida. Uh, and it's crazy to think my, uh, my parents lived down there, you know, for the last half of the sixties and a couple of years into the seventies. And for all I know, a couple of those buildings were getting built while they were there. That's just wild to me. Yeah. The boom that you're experiencing in Nashville now, Joey, Florida experienced something like that about 40, 50 years ago. And, they're kind of experiencing another one now. I mean, people are moving to Florida almost as quickly as they're moving to Tennessee. But uh, uh, right now, you got to be careful because they're building some new stuff in Florida. But at the same time, people are moving into old buildings as well. Mm-hmm. So, all right, let's talk about some good news. How about we uh, talk about <laughs> making money? So, if you had shares of Sika stock, then uh, you're sitting a little bit pretty right now because. Yersika announced purchase of BASF construction from Lone Star, and uh, they're expecting that to go through. Now, again, it's just an announcement that they want to buy it for $6 billion. Mm. 
but that's got to go through a lot of legal hurdles. You know, you're talking about two of the the largest concrete admixture companies come together, and you know, we'll see if that makes it through the all the SEC things, antitrust things that that's got to go through. But at the end of the day, that's that's some of the most major news that broke at the end of 2021 that we haven't been able to cover yet on the pod. So uh, looking like looking like it might go through. The way you know, I'm started reading reports on you know. Is it going to get blocked? And they said, no, no, it's not. And uh, so we'll see if see if that really does go through. But Sika was up 12 percent, you know, going into the end of the year. So maybe they can hold on to that. And if you got some of that stock, maybe you're sitting kind of pretty right now. How many admixture companies are there now with everybody merging and getting bought out? Like how many do we actually have now that are you know, considerable size? I know Four. two. I know of two. <laughs> Three. Yeah. Now you got uh, well, we can name them here. You got you know Creso, mm-hmm. uh, who's uh, you know medium to large player. You got Sika, BASF, who they just bought, uh, GCP, who's up for sale, um, which was WR Grace. They went into Grace Construction Products. Supposedly they're being sold as well, um, and Euclid and Mape. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot about Mape. Yeah, I always forget about so them. Yeah, so those are like some of your bigger ones if there's others out there and you guys are you know getting upset that i'm not naming you i, I apologize reach but. out and come on the show <laughs> yeah <laughs> get out here and extol your virtues will you <laughs> yeah no so those are some of the bigger ones so i mean you're going to be left uh, pretty sure gcp's getting sold so you're consolidating down to to sika euclid mape and Creso. that's crazy it's just like everywhere else we've been with ready mix companies and block companies. It's just fish eating other fish, and I don't. At some point, and I'll be I'll be kind of curious to see what the economist uh, that we have on says about this. At what point is it? Uh, does monopoly come into play? Like, will there ever be a situation where they converge and merge so much that monopoly gets uh, thrown around? There's. I mean, it's got to be, right? I mean, it's got to be. Yeah. I don't know how. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be shocked if Sika BASF merger goes through. Like, that to me seems like crazy uh, concentration of the chemical admixture business, you know? I mean, just, we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens, but the economists will be able You know, I kind of feel bad. We have, So, today we have an amazing guest that Josh can introduce. It was probably our best interview ever. He's, uh, he's incredible. And we've spent the whole time talking about a future guest that we haven't even had yet. So, uh, all apologies to Dr. Belkowitz. <laughs> well, well I'll, I'll tell you what. As we get into our guest here, the Mr. John Belkowitz uh, does not need any additional hype. He doesn't, he doesn't need a lead-in. He doesn't need a hype man. He needs a microphone in about an hour and a half of your time, and you will be ready to run through a wall. I have never been more excited to work within concrete than, than I was the minute after we got done the interview with John. He's, he's one of the most passionate people that I've ever had the, the opportunity to meet. And he's doing a lot of really great work. Um, John, John owns and runs the research and development department uh, at Intelligent Concrete. He's based out of Denver, Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. His education is extensive civil engineering from Colorado School of Mines, MS from Denver, a PhD from New Jersey, 
where it's actually funny midway through the episode he gives a little dig to the state of new jersey which is absolutely hilarious and something we can all get behind but uh but yeah i mean the the guy's education is extensive his military service is extensive his work history is extensive um and he's just he's full of information experience and uh, he even puts a couple bets down on the podcast so you guys listening along Make sure to reach out to him on his social media platforms and, and, you know, let him know. Let him know if you agree. If you disagree, maybe you could throw into the pot and in another five to ten years, maybe somebody can walk home with some money. But we even get we even get into stuff like uh, concrete 3D printers and all sorts of things. It's the first time ever that I think I've argued with someone about something. And in the middle of the argument, he goes, you know what? You changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, But then he turned around and he, like, he like flipped it on us again, and uh, and so it, it became a friendly argument. Uh, well, I mean, he was wrong, but that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> it, it went from being a friendly argument to like we kind of merged the ideas and came up with something brand new. So it's uh, absolutely a phenomenal interview. I'm really excited for everybody to hear it. I'm glad Josh is introducing right now because when we started off the interview, I don't think there was any introduction. We just hit record, and, man, it was zero to 90 right then and there. He, There was no time for introduction. I mean, we just got down to the nitty-gritty right then. Yep, yep. Oh, no, and, and like I said, if he didn't have a hard out, uh, we'd still be we'd still be discussing. But uh, without further ado, after – I told you he didn't need any lead-in or hype, but, you know, after that lead-in and hype, without further ado, this is Mr. John Belkowitz from Intelligent Concrete. Y'all enjoy. Hold on, hold on. He said we. Who's we? Oh, Whitney, my, my wonderful boss and wife. Wife and boss. I don't know which one is which. Uh, is sitting right here, too. Well, I was just kidding. You watch yourself. You watch. That's impossible. Um, so yeah, Whitney and I went back to New Jersey to take care of my folks. I did a PhD out in Jersey. Um, and that was December, 2009. And that's when we started intelligent concrete. So yeah, I was at Quibus for that time. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So I was at Lafarge right after you, um, uh, summer of 2010, right in the middle of all that recession. Sure. <laughs> and you should know, we should have a mutual acquaintance, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Ryan Betts. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> literally one of my best friends in the industry. Talk all the time. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. <laughs> he was our very first interview. Yes, I know. It was one of my favorite, favorite of the podcasts. No, 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 no. The Colin Lobo ones. That one. I don't know who called. Come on, Colin. That's what we do on this thing. We talk about this type of stuff. That I think that was my favorite. The one with Ryan. That was a good one too. We couldn't get Colin to speculate on yeah. anything. We're like, come on, that's what we do. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, he was kind of, kind of. But I talk about that uh, that podcast often. I recommended it to the uh, Colorado Ready Mix Concrete Association when uh, we were talking about uh, prescriptive versus performance specifications, and you know who has ever come up with an argument for prescriptive based mixes. And I got to tell you, some guys. It surprises me that you haven't had Rich Seishi on the podcast. He is – I don't know if you all know the name, Rich. He's ASTMC09 chairman now, uh, works COO for Charlie's Concrete, uh, professor at Texas – one of the colleges in concrete. 
really dope, dope dude and brilliant when it comes to real Crete, lab Crete, and book Crete in that order. That's that's great. Hey, let him know we're going to reach out to him. Love to meet him. So one of the things that you're known for is colloidal silica. I mean, it's what you got your PhD in. You start Intelligent Concrete. I got to know. I'm going to jump right into it. How on earth did you decide to become an expert in colloidal silica in concrete? Um, so I was working full of Farge in the Western U.S. Business Unit. And uh, this was back in 2009. Katie Bartage and Kurt Von Fay wrote a wonderful flipping paper on why ASR was all of a sudden becoming a, a huge issue, especially in the Western U.S., and they summarized it to three basic issues. The, the high alkali, high blaine finest cements that we had, you know, started getting in the late 90s with that great cement shortage. Uh, reduction in quality and volumes of supplementary cementitious materials such as F-ash. And the, the use of nastier aggregate, you know, especially out in the Western U.S. Um, so I saw the writing on the wall that stuff was going to get a little bit nastier for us for ASR and our choices to deal with ASR, especially with lithium and where it was going. We started getting, you know, the back orders on lithium, gosh, in 2006, 2007 timeframe. Um, so it, it happened quick. So I, I was already interested in, you know, uh, another solution besides FASH. And this was for New Mexico, Colorado, Kansas City. So I was at the... Um, the ACI National Convention in Denver in 2006. And, you know, I'm, um, I hate to use the word geek, but I, I love L-O-V-E reading technical papers. Some of them are like a, a choose your own adventure story. And I know that sounds stupid, but there's, there's, this, there's this paper by, um, uh, I think it's Palenque et al., on the glassy nature of water. And it talks about when, you know, you're making concrete and you can confine the water into a smaller pore, the fractal network, right? You densify it to the point that the water doesn't have a bulk state. It has this glassy nature, this, this strength to it, and it can't freeze and it can't recombine with other stuff for ASR, calcium oxy, or blah, 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 blah. Um, Again, you know, some of these papers I'm reading, I'm like, what the heck? Like, holy crap. Like, how did we not know this? And there's this, there's this one paper on the use, you say colloidal silica, one paper on the use of colloidal silica to enhance the interfacial zone of steel reinforcement. One of the best, best papers I've ever read. I mean, just – so anyway, I was at the 2006 ACI National Convention in Denver – I didn't get to see much of it. I was running the compression machine as a favor, and I got to see one presentation. It was Brian H. Green from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and he was talking about the use of an ultrafine amorphous colloidal silica to make a rock-matching grout. And this guy was using this, this milkshake-like grout with hematite, with hematite, hematite in it, and he was – Filling up this underground cavern, underground cavern that had sensors in it with this rock matching grout. And then they were going to set nuclear toilet off, right? So he needed this rock matching grout to match the, the in situ rock so that they can get um, more consistent data out of the sensors. The, 
the wave attenuation of the nuclear payload exploding would be more like the natural rock, not a, a ground. The problem is when he was using, you know, what were you using for viscosity modifying agents? Uh, xanthan gum, dextrose, he would see an increase in air content, a reduction in strength, and it would just soften up the matrix. So it wouldn't be like, you know, whatever the stone was, let's say it was granite. I honestly don't remember. They use this ultrafine amorphous colloidal silica. What a great name. The ultrafine amorphous. They need a t-shirt that says that. Um, he used that to keep, you know, things in suspension, right? The hematite in suspension, especially with this, this melted chocolate milkshake of a grout. There's even video on this. Oh, I don't know if there's it's, uh, available online anymore. What he found was that it increased strength. It reduced permeability. And it increased wave attenuation, meaning it matched more to the grout because of the densification that happened with the nanosilica. And part of what he saw was this um, instantaneous posilonic reaction. And to me, oh man, it was like, I don't want to see, say I, I heard a choir in the background, like, oh, but it was just like, it made sense. It like all, it like came together like the piece I had been, when I started at Lafarge, I started working at, you know, three o'clock in the morning and I finished at 11 o'clock at night. Whitney and I's first date was in the concrete lab. We were supposed to go to this nice steakhouse and I had to do some road patch. She ended up stopping the timer and I almost broke up with her. Nobody said stop the timer. And tell me we're doing slow evolution. Timer. <laughs> <laughs> like, this this was what this was. You know what makes this was Cronolia Road Patch in the early days. We were doing 10, 30, 60, 90 minute evolutions. I said, hey, you know, tell me when we get to 10 minutes. That's all I said. I didn't say give the timer a little tap. You're lucky. I love you so much. That you still call it by its like branded name, uh, Cronolia, Agilia. Like you're bringing back, you know, old memories, man. Uh, I tell you, Cronolia, that was where I shined. But but I'm going, I'm 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 going tangent. This article, if you've never read, if, if you really don't believe me, what I'm saying, you know, there's a, there are papers out there that read like choose your own adventure story. Read any of Brian Greene's work, Chuck Weiss's work, Robert Mosier. Jason Weiss, any of those guys who were students of Dale Vance, Dr. Bryant Mather, they're all excellent, right? I think you guys know who Jason Weiss is, if you don't know Brian Greene. Um, so I saw this work by Brian Greene, and it was just like, you know, stars. And so I went up to Brian Greene, so starstruck, and I was like, hey, my name is John Belkowitz, and I want to be your best friend. And he was, <laughs> He goes, huh? I said, my name is John Belkowitz. That was the best presentation I ever saw, and I want to be your best friend. And I did not stop bothering him and hanging out with him until he became one of my best friends. And, you know, Brian did a lot of great work, and I, I would attribute him with being the father of modern colloidal silica for concrete. He's the one who ushered it in from, you know, Sweden and Norway and Colombia. But what we did with it, when I say we, there's a group of us because Brian, bless him, and the rest of the Army Corps was gracious enough to pay for a, a large portion of my PhD. And because of that, all of my research is available for free. 
you know, there's there's two things that they wanted to make sure that it wasn't, you know, uh, uh, research for the sake of research. It had to be gray concrete coming down the chute. Brian says, John, I don't care how cool your technology is. If it's not gray concrete coming down the chute, it's going to be a waste of time. Nobody's going to use it. In, in piggyback with that, uh, people had to be able to read my dissertation, use the dissertation. And that was a, a major component of it. So all of my research is available online. And man, we had a lot of fun. And again, I say we because it wasn't just me. I mean, Whitney helped me out with a large portion of it. And the folks at the U.S. Army Corps, she missed in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I mean, I even broke a major telescope on Thanksgiving for this PhD research. It was pretty scary. It was pretty scary. <laughs> but that, that's how I fell in love with colloidal silica for concrete. I blame Brian Green, and it's been awesome ever since. No, no, it's great. So you may not believe this, but we actually do a lot of underground fill where we have to match the strength of the in-situ rock all the time. We do it in cemented backfill in underground mines for gold, zinc, copper mines. So we, we understand very much. And you know, something else that I bet that colloidal silica did in that, uh, in that underground mix was it likely eliminated the bleed water from rapidly escaping. So you didn't get that settlement either. So you're able to more evenly fill that void. We saw that in the Savannah River project that we worked on for a time uh, where they couldn't have any bleed because they needed to fill that pipe solid and no spaces. Right. And um, the way I say it, the way that nanosilica, people ask me for an explanation on how it does that because that's a phenomenon that people use to make products out of. But uh, um, I don't know how y'all, how old y'all are, but I'm a kid of the 80s. And when I was a kid, when you had ketchup, you had to shake it up. And if you didn't shake up that Heinz ketchup, you had some like this like juice, right? Like it was clear, milky, reddish with fibers. Ugh. It was gross. Nowadays, you don't see that. You don't see, you don't have to shake up the, the ketchup. And the reason is, is that they're using colloidal silica in ketchup to keep it more homogeneous. Now, how cool is that? Not recommending that you eat colloidal silica, um, but it does the same thing for concrete. It creates a more homogeneous mixture so that we don't have that, that consolidation of everything else that's heavier and then that squeezing of water to the surface and then all of the, the capillaries or the, the paths that get created from that bleed water, those bleed channels. That's how we actually don't go with the ketchup metaphor. <laughs> but yeah, we... Uh... We let people know our nano silica does does that exactly what you said with the bleed channels and the fact that it's bipolar, you know, it attracts the water and disrupts those bleed channels. And when you can disrupt them, suddenly you don't have rapid bleed and ponding all over the surface of your concrete. Or it helps out with ketchup. It's kind of, <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You know, um, we just finished writing an ASTM for colloidal silica. And as part of it, we do this rationale, and they asked us to put three things that that really changes up the nanosilica from the micro and silica and the fly ash and the silica fume. And it's one of those things is that the way that it keeps things homogeneous in suspension, but then it's the reaction rate that goes with it. It's that instantaneous posilonic reaction, that accelerated cement dissolution, and 
something, a, a fancy term called heterogeneous nucleation. And which means is really small things are going to grow things on it. Can you prove that you're creating those nucleation sites? Yeah, heck yeah. And it's not just me who's proved it. Um, there are three, four great papers. There's this guy, Bjorn Bjornstrom, back in 2003, and then separately in 2004, he wrote two papers on you know, the, the impact of this heterogeneous nucleation effect, specifically when it comes to nanosilica with cement. Then there was uh, Stephen Land et al. back in 2012 that did the same thing, but they went even deeper commenting on and doing experiments that showed the instantaneous posolonic reaction in combination with the accelerated cement dissolution and heterogeneous nucleation, and he called it a calcium silicate hydrate seeding effect. But to go to the basics of your question, there's a lovely, lovely little school called Georgia Tech. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it. <laughs> they have a fantastic concrete program, one of my favorites. And there was a gentleman there years ago, uh, Jamal Jayalapan, who did a study not on nanosilica particles in a dispersion, but nano TiO2. And in that paper, he identified using, I think it was differential thermal gravimetric analysis, whatever that, you know, those fancy pieces of equipment. But he's basically looked at the change in nanoparticle size and how that impacted the amount of energy that was pushed out by the uh, hydration kinetics. And with nano TiO2, it's an inert material as opposed to the nanosilica. So we're not looking at chemical reactions. We're just looking at a particle size distribution and a size effect. So yes, we have proven it. And when I say we, again, I'm using the royal you know, term that the larger industry has proved it over and over and over. No, it's great because carbonates have said the same thing for years. And I've never seen a single paper that said, yeah, we proved that we're creating nucleation sites when you put our fine powder in here. And so I was curious how you did it. So glad to hear that the royal we showed up with uh, multiple papers. Tell everybody it really works. And what I could do is I can share with you some of those papers um, just to make it easier for you to find them. But I got to tell you, the, the, the ones that really had an impact on my PhD research uh, were, were the, the four papers that I talked about from Bjornstrom, Jay Alapan, and then from Stephen and Land. I mean, those blew my mind. Again, I even did a, a YouTube video on a, a commentary on the Land paper because it just like... I, I know the ready mix industry does not have an R and D budget. I know contractors, I get that. But hey man, like I, I, I started out as a contractor. I started out as a mucker's apprentice. And it was the curiosity in me that drove me to look at papers that I had to sit with a flipping dictionary to understand. You know, the excuse that, well, we don't need to learn that stuff and the academic side, they don't know what the hell the construction. I get that. There is a separation. I I, I get that. But man, I think if Ready Mix providers just read one paper a month, contractors, they might not learn something. They'll probably waste 90% of their time. But that 10%, holy moly, guacamole, could learn so much. Sorry, go ahead. No, don't ever say sorry. Look, <laughs> you're the guest. These guys, they've heard everything we think. We're going we're gonna to rattle on for what, like 20 minutes before you even get introduced to this thing. So please never apologize. Yeah. I might stop you every once in a while because 
I can't let you just say something that is uh, patently, or not patently, but uh, possibly unverifiable. I'm going to call you on it. Friendly, call you on it. So all jokes aside, all this stuff is another tool in the toolbox, right? And, you know, you guys sell your ActiGel. And I'm working with somebody right now across one of the borders who's working with ActiGel. And it's a great product, but... You know, at, at a certain point, you have to ask people why they're using a technology and is there a reason for it? And very obviously, there are many reasons to use your technology. And maybe I can say ActiGel one more time for a plug for your technology. But ActiGel, <laughs> uh, ActiGel, ActiGel. Um, with, with colloidal silica, you know, I've been working on this for 15 years. And, you know, Joey, I remember meeting you in, I don't know if it was Vegas at a World of Concrete or Phoenix. At an AC, which one? I think it was Phoenix or Phoenix, Phoenix or Reno or one of those uh, Western cities where the ACI was. I remember it though. And that's when I first started using ActiGel. So I'm guessing that you guys have been using it for at least seven years or 10 years, somewhere around that, right? What I have found using not just colloidal silica, but, you know, we specialize in carbon nanotubes and, you know, uh, electrically conducting or magnetic concrete. A lot of these technologies, they're cool as hell, but if they don't have an end user, it's just research for the sake of research. It's like Roman concrete. That is one of the things that pisses me off. You want to piss me off? Ask me what I think about Roman concrete. And that's not an invitation. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that gets me is when I hear about universities doing research in Roman concrete. How the heck is that going to help us out today? I've got concrete pavements in Michigan failing 15, 20 years before their service life was intended. And we're going to look at some, some aqueduct in Kesalia and say, oh, well, they added seawater. How the hell am I going to do that in Michigan? <laughs> it's so mad at that Roman concrete shit. Um, so what I have found, you know, to, to make a big circle here, you know, and I don't know if you guys notice this, is that if the industry is not ready for the technology, it's going to go absolutely nowhere. Is that a fair assessment? To the fire a little bit on that, John, when has the industry been ready? <laughs> for colloidal silica or in general? For any, any, new, any new technology. You have to be so persistent within this industry and many industries, but the concrete industry especially, you have to be so persistent with new technology. You have to get it right the first time. Otherwise, it sets you back decades. And it, I feel like, and you can elaborate on this if you'd like, I feel like there have been so many good efficient, useful technologies that have gone by the wayside and have just died in an R&D lab. Is that a fair assessment? Fair assessment. This is why you've got to have Rich Seishi. That guy, he flipping awesome. Anyway, it's called the Hype Curve, right? It was a hype. The Hype Curve was published by, I think it was Wired Magazine back in 2002. Uh, and if I can find it quick, I'll pull it up. But basically, you you have this this infancy, this early adoption of technology where everybody's very, very kind to it. You know, it's like an infant almost. And then it goes through this slump, almost like a dormancy period, similar to cement hydration. It all goes back to concrete. And then you have this acceleration period where you have an inflation of expectations of what the technology can do. It's not that you have one chance to make it. Your new technology better increase my compressive strength 
better increase my flex. I better not see a dang thing with my fresh properties. I better get it at cost. And it needs to make me coffee, a latte, right? It has to do all those things, except there's one exception. When there is a frantic need in the industry for something. And let me give you a for example. Back in 1998, and I'm dating myself here, I used to have this majestic mane of hair. Uh, <laughs> 1996 to 1998, I don't know if you guys remember the great cement shortage. Crept up on us in 96, hit real hard in 97 and 98. It's when we changed over from the Hoover Dam cements, these coarsely grain cements, cements that would get us 28 days and 28 day strengths to these Asian or these you know, Asian based cements that higher alkali, finer blame fineness to them or higher blame fineness, excuse me. And instead of waiting 28 days, we got our 28 day strength in like 24 hours or seven days. Um, and then when we went back to the coarse grain cements, we were like, what the heck is this, man? We don't want this crap anymore. Give us that finally. Give us that other crap. So a need in the industry for us to get that, that critical path of construction to happen faster. When it came to RCC back in the early 2000s, your SCC, you know, how awesome was that? I remember Lafarge, they had this video where they had two slabs, a conventional concrete slabs with, with 10 guys on it, like a 20 by 20, and then another 20 by 20. And it was an SCC slab. And they had a young lady in high heel boots, but with one of those little, you know, uh, PVC pipes, kind of like a jitterbug. She placed that slab in 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. The guys to the right, you know, 10 guys with the conventional concrete four to six inch slump, it took them an hour and a half to place the slab, right? Where's SCC 20 years later? Where is SCC? You hardly ever see it. We didn't need it. Who really need Today, you have something similar. Same thing with RCC, by the way. We didn't need it. It's cool, but we didn't need it. Look at 3D printing. Did you guys go World of Concrete? We didn't go this year. Okay, without going to the World of Concrete, I bet you a dollar, right? And the rule is, if I'm right, you got to write John was right, Josh Paul or Joey was wrong, the date, you got to sign it. You go over to World of Concrete, you're going to find out that the most popular thing was 3D printing, hmm. right? And why? Yeah, we have this inflation of expectation as what the technology can do, but we also have a 55% labor shortage in some parts of the world. We have 8.1 billion people, 7.7 .7 billion people. You know, that means if you're one in a million, you know, somewhere in Norway, there's a 7,100 7, or 7,700 of you, right? There's just a lot of people. Come on. That was kind of funny, guys. Shoot. This is a tough one. Well, you, you set the bar kind of high. That was... <laughs> I did. Um, with something like 3D printing, you know, Josh, you asked, when are we ever at that point? Right now, we got no effing choice. It's either... We get a house printed in 40 hours or we're going to be waiting, waiting six months to two years for a house. And the man of construction is always going to beat out. Now, here's, here's the other thing. If you look at what's going on with Class F fly ash, I can't remember whose research out of the TRB. It was, I think, out of TTI where they did a survey on ready mix providers that no longer had Class F fly ash. 
And as it turns out, uh, was in 2019, there were 16 out of the 40, um, 49, is it 49, 48 continental United States, 16 that did not have class F fly ash. But thanks for being nice for me to me for not knowing how many states are continental United States. You guys are great. <laughs> you got it right the first time. Right. Um, so by 2022, there were only supposed to be 19, you know, three additional states. I believe it's up to 22 at this point. So the and, – and listen, I'm not calling pond ash or harvested ash class F fly ash. You know, anything that comes from a pond, it don't count no more. Uh, or should go to a pond doesn't count no more, according to me, and I'll, I'll take that. Um, but we're in a point, Josh, just to go back to what you asked, we're at a point where people, they don't have a choice. It's either you choose something else or you choose to stay with straight cement and deal with the lawsuits in the next five to 10 years or the rip out replacements. So that that's the caveat to what you had said, respectfully. Right, right. Yeah. So, so necessity drives innovation in a sense. Going back to 3D concrete, what do you think it's going to take to have that take off? Is it going to be a major ready mix supplier in an area pairing with some contractor in an area and they start 3D printing these houses in subdivisions? Or what would it take for 3D printing to take off in the United States? If I was a ready mix provider, and I hope you're ready mix providers, you know, you guys have an amazing podcast because you're very informative and you're speaking to the industry. You're not speaking above the industry. You're not speaking below. And this is public service announcement for ready mix providers. Residential concrete is normally 80% of what they do. Is that a fair comment? Yeah, right? I would agree with that. They're going to lose that market because what you're doing with 3D, I know, I know that is a, you know, write it down, dollar bet. Give it five years, 10 years at the most. If I'm wrong, oh, look, Rich Seishi. Can I answer this real quick? What are you doing? Answer it. <laughs> hey. Hey, man. I, uh, I owed you a phone call. You owe me a phone call. Listen, I'm on a podcast interview right now. I told them to interview you, so they're going to be reaching out to you. Is that cool? Oh, yeah, yeah. No worries. All right. I told them you're not very nice, but you're very honest. See <laughs> <laughs> you later. All right, bye. Bye. Okay. Not denied that description. No. <laughs> so. Can't wait for that one. <laughs> oh, this is so brilliant. It's an actual goldmine for sound bites so far. So we're You're, great, boys. You're <laughs> incredible, John. All right. Hold on. Let's so five to ten years, you think this technology is gonna eat the lunch of the ready mix guy who right now is doing sixty percent of his mixes are three thousand PSI, the other twenty-five percent it's 4,000 PSI with 15% being specialty mixes. And you're like, hey, that 60 to 85% of your concrete is gone. You have to make a change right now. You're, that's your prediction. That's your dollar that I'm going to take in five years. I'm going to put it. I'm putting it off to the side right now so I do not forget. Um, and I think 10 years after that, if you want to put another dollar on that, 10 years after that, it's going to be ultra high performance concrete. And they're going to start losing uh, the commercial side of the industry, too. I just want everybody who's listening to know he pushed it from five years to 10 years when he pulled the money out. Darned it, right? <laughs> I said 10 years after that. So I still think there's that. I do think it's going to be a five to 10 year window for residential side. 
Um, I, I Let me push it to five years. I think five years residential is going to start eating the lunch of the ready-mix provider. And gentlemen, you can tell me I'm lying or I'm crazy, but let, let me give me two minutes, two more minutes, right? Think about it. On a job site, you've got less people. Insurance-wise, as a contractor, you think, I don't have to pay for as many people screwing up on the job site, right? Not just liability, but also, you know, or general liability, but professional liability too. But not just that, if you've never seen Apis Core has this wonderful video of a multi-story structure that they printed in Dubai, right? Printed in Dubai two years ago, three years ago. They are printing nonstop. At one point, it's like one, two o'clock in the morning. There's one guy on the job site and the printer is going on this multi-story structure. He has got his legs kicked up and he's reading a book. Construction is still going on with one guy on the job site reading a book. If you're an investor in real estate development and that doesn't drive you to buy at least 10 machines, which has happened at World of Concrete, Granted, there are a lot of things to fix. I'm not saying it's perfect, but if you are an investor, if you're a contractor, granted, you're become the ready mix provider, but shoot, you're going to make money hand over fist just by saving money. I got like 10 seconds left. If you're a ready mix provider, what you're going to be afraid of is that I don't have to make and deliver concrete or I can't make and deliver concrete anymore for that sector. They don't need me anymore. And ah, they're starting to grab at my heels for vertical construction. I mean, we're, we're, we're building on other planets, automated building on other planets. The ready mix providers are not going to be able to put a truck on a job site for five hours. Just not going to happen, especially when we can just push a button. So yes, 3D printing, five years and then 10 years after that, they're going to take over commercial. What's our, what's your bet up to now? Are we at $2? I'm at $2. I see your $2. I will raise you another three to make it five. And I will bet that a contractor gets, starts getting metered concrete trucks or vice versa. Metered concrete companies, you know, start contracting their own and they supply their own concrete instead of having to jump through the hoops, you know, with, uh, with your local or with a huge, uh, ready mix corporation by that time at the rate things are going everywhere we go in every major city that we go to the big fish are eating a little eating up the little fish you don't see the mom and pop ready mix companies anymore you still see those metered concrete companies though you and they i think those are increasing and we've had a uh, billy wagner on the show uh talking about metered concrete and i've been a big proponent of it for a couple of years now i love it and so it would make sense to me for someone, either someone in the metered concrete business to start make supplying uh, concrete internally with their own contractor and making their own 3D printed houses, or you would have a contractor pair uh, or have a contractor get their own trucks and operators and make their own concrete. That That makes more sense to me. I won't disagree with that. I mean, it's, I think... Uh... You know, the, the, it, there's going to be a separation of wheat and chaff. You know, right now, you know, people have called the 3D printing in the agents or industry the Wild West. The Wild West. You have a lot of engineers from MIT, Dartmouth, 
as well as folks who are backyard mechanical engineers who have created these companies. And I'm, I'm trying to be very respectful, but I am talking about the big ones, the icons, the Apis cores, Cobots, Mudbots, the, the, you know, brilliant people, but they don't run businesses. That's what's going to take it the five years. I know Sika and Lafarge Wholesome have gotten involved, and I wouldn't be surprised if Active Mineral has already gotten involved in 3D printing. There are a lot of papers out there that are from several universities that have Active in their 3D printed concrete formulations. And one of those big companies you just named, uh, they don't advertise it. But when people ask, like, hey, I need the ingredients for your mix, well, we get phone calls because Actigel is in their design. What we're seeing is a lot of investors are buying, uh, real estate investors are buying machines and trying to create their own mix, right? As cheap as possible, a local blender. I mean, you saw Cobot had this thing that, you know, the, in a new thing with Semex or was it Apis Core that they can now make, you know, mixes locally. And, you know, which is not a very hard thing to do. What Cobot did differently is now they're using concrete in one of their, their printers, which I think is great. But, you know, whatever, even if I lose these $2, I'm okay with losing it. I think we can all agree that our labor shortage is not going to bounce back as quickly as everybody hopes. No, it's been on the decline for a long time. Now, just recently, it's been even accelerated past the point that we were trying to figure out ways to get around the labor shortage five, almost 10 years ago. And now it's a real problem at your doorstep, but it's been a problem for a long time. Some of our customers, one of our customers went out two weeks ago, three weeks ago, you know, with some burritos and Gatorade. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Oh, it's horrible. What do you mean? It's the end of the year. It was the beginning of the year. And he goes, "We have how many houses you built? 1,500 houses. Like, holy crap, that's a Christmas contract. He goes, John, I'm working my guys 70 to 80 hours a week, and most of them are about to quit. He goes, I still have to build an extra 250 houses that I missed last year. Because this is not a Christmas contract. I'm going to lose my company. And again, I, I don't know if 1,500 houses sounds small, but these were – you know, Colorado Springs was one of the most popular places to live was two or three years ago, and it hasn't stopped. So uh, eventually, we're just like I said before with the Class F fly ash. My uncle Richard is a contractor. He's in his 70s, and he cannot get people to show up. Eventually, we've got to – it's either we're going to start bringing people in who do want to work and bless that, or technology is going to catch up. And what did you say before, Josh? Necessity is the, the root of innovation. Right. Colloidal silica is the same thing. 15 years ago, when I was talking about colloidal silica and concrete, people thought it was ridiculous. We don't need that. Are you kidding me? We got, we're throwing away F-Ash. We don't need this stuff. And now, all of a sudden, you look at Indiana DOT. You know, 200-some-odd bridges or bridge decks or whatever. They are going to colloidal silica in lieu of Class F fly ash. I want to get to that Indiana... Uh, contract in just a second. Um, but for me personally, going back to the 3D concrete printing, to, to me, it's analogous. 3D concrete printing is to the concrete world what electric vehicles are to the automobile industry. You get a lot of people that are excited about it. They want it and they're trying, but it's really just not there yet. It's exciting technology. 
could be game changing. Um, but there's a lot of things behind the scenes that are going to have to be working way better than they're working now if we want to be building hotels and houses with it anytime soon. Well, I mean, if you look at what the Chinese and uh, I mean, what, what they're doing with the folks, I think the company is um, Winsun and in Dubai, it's not just Apis Core. Um, you know, one of the things that I complain about with uh, 3D printing, and I don't know if you guys notice this, most of the 3D printers are donating houses in Mexico or in Africa or all really small square footage stuff. Well, it's all press. It's yeah. all, they're just hiring a couple of reporters, take a few photos. They write the article for the <laughs> reporter yeah. and they send it to the newspaper. Like, Here, uh, tell everyone that we're building 3D houses. Here's a house in Mexico we donated for 30 cents. Or, or 50 houses or 100 houses. And it's not 30 cents. There's a lot of money that goes behind bringing a, a multi-million dollar piece of equipment, an entire crew, and then a sentry guard in plain clothes to watch not only the equipment, but also the people too, and then house everybody. So it's actually a lot of money to give away these houses. But the question is, why is everybody giving these houses away? And the answer is, nobody wants to live. Nobody wants to pay to live in something that looks like stacked when you look at most 3D printed homes, and here's a 3D printed section, so this would be the length of the layer. This is layer one, or this is layer one, this is layer two, and this is layer three. I mean, this is a beautiful, consistent layer. This is the, the mix I created for Icon, and I, I, not to toot my own horn, but this is the sexiest 3D printed mix you'll ever flip and see. Sexiest! Um, but still... Even though there's no tears in it, you see some of these these prints with, I don't know how people show these things. The layers are falling, they're cracked, they're ripped. As a homeowner, as an investor in properties, I would not pay money for any of these prints except for one. Except for one. One, 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 one. There's a print that uh, Christian Dior, the I don't know if it's a fashion company, art company, whatever it is, they commissioned in Dubai, and the printer was, I think, a, a wasp printer. And they took the, the ugly side of 3D printing and turned it into gorgeous print. And they didn't change anything. It's still stacked layers. kind of looked like dog poop, but they turned it into a, an advantage, a benefit. But my the whole thing on this 3D printed house is like, who cares if it looks like stacked lines? As long as they're solid and structurally sound because we're going to put cladding on the outside anyway. We're going to put a veneer that looks like brick or you're going to put sheetrock on the inside, frame it up. No, that is, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt respectfully. I interrupt respectfully. I apologize, but no, 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 no. When you print something on your printer, you have to go back and touch it up with a little bit of color here. We got, I, I got to add a few words because the printer didn't put the word. No, no, no. When we print a house, the ultimate objective is you press a button and at the end of that button press, or at the end of that 40 hours, you don't have to do anything. I understand now we're having people come in and put ducko or something else on it, but the ultimate objective is you don't have to do anything else. Real, real quick here, John, I'm coming from a point where I, I have a 3D printer myself and I, I 3D print things for other people and for my own personal use, but it's all plastic. It's everything from PLA to carbon fiber infused nylon and everything in between. And if you want a smooth print, you take that layer height down and you use a smaller extrusion nozzle size 
and it increases your time of print exponentially. But as to your point, I mean, you can either get this thing printed in 40 hours or you can wait six months to, to build your house. Is there a benefit in printing that house in two days or, or you know, two days longer or even double the time, 80 hours instead of 40 hours? In, in your, I guess, experience, do they mess with that? Like layer heights for a more smooth finish or different extrusion rates and speed rates and things of that nature? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, I, I think, you know, getting to my point that I was trying to argue that we should have, you know, the eventual, the objective, the milestone, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, the tunnel that we hope is not New Jersey is <laughs> oh, my father and mother are going to kill me for saying that no, the end result is that you press a button and we get to that point that is the inflated expectation that is the ramping up that i talk about that often causes the demise sorry you're you're wrong so let me tell you how you're wrong is that we're not going to build buildings that throw us back into 1960s Soviet Union. Oh, look at all these block concrete dormitories that everybody wants to live in. Look at, look at this Baroque style architecture. We're not going back to that, bro. So what we need, though, is instead of having stick built houses, you have concrete built houses. Now, if it's 3D printed, that's awesome. That's great. You know, not a bunch of formwork. No, like you said, not a lot of labor. You just got your little printer out there. It gives you whatever floor plan design you want. You get your walls to whatever height you want. Boom, we got concrete walls. But on the outside of that concrete, we can have brick veneer or vinyl siding or whatever floats your boat. And on the inside, you can put, if you want, if you need more insulation, may not. Concrete's a pretty good insulator. But let's put up walls that like people are familiar with. Let's not give them this cold, hard, look, we're concrete nerds. We love concrete. We probably all live in a concrete house. But like the general person doesn't want that. They want something they're familiar with. Let's give them some sheetrock walls. Let them be able to hang their paintings like a normal person. Not to get, you know, concrete screws and try, you know, try and hang up their family members in the kitchen. So I have to say there, it's a multi-step process. I don't think it's just print a concrete wall and leave. I agree with you. If I could only throw in a caveat, you, you, you've changed my want, my mind, Paul. I'm, I'm on a new path, you know, like the Robert Frost poem. Um, except for one caveat, if if we have a printer, just like Josh brought up, we can we can use different types of filaments or inks. So if you want a sheetrock wall, and if you want that wall to look flat, you literally only have to change up the ink from being a cementitious composite that has a strength of twenty five to thirty five hundred psi to a gypsum composite that has a strength of thousand to twelve hundred psi. Um, soundproof, you know, you could do the same thing with the infill. Like, okay. okay. Whoa, whoa, hold on. <laughs> I think I've just been converted. <laughs> we now have no contractors on site. You, now we're back in the 3D printing model. All right. Hey, did we just start a company? <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are a bunch of companies trying to do that. And that's where the industry is, is making that conversion. That's the hype curve, right? So, and I, I don't want to show the hype curve because uh, ACI 309 just uh, – I, Michael – oh, gosh, I forgot his last name. Frobel, I think his last name is. Um, anyway, nice guy. Asked me to put on a presentation about 3D printing and comparing it to uh, – or, or, or where it's going, the progress of it. And this is the issue. 
with the hype curve, it's either like Bitcoin. We start ramping up. We have inflated expectation. All of a sudden, the technology meets the demand and rocket ship to the moon. What happened with SCC is now we got to teach people not how to use SCC, but we got to teach ready-mix providers how to use high-range water reducers. Oh, and guess what? We don't know how to use high-range water reducers. <laughs> and then it, right? The expectations are not met. And the industry, Josh, I think you said, or maybe Joey said it, that we have one chance. Come on, guys. We, we don't have one chance. Hold on. Hold on. SEC's problem is different than that. I think you're missing out uh, two major components. Please. Number one, they said we can make it and sell it anywhere, especially Lafarge. Lafarge was saying Agilia in Kansas City is going to be the same as Agilia in Denver. It's going to be exactly the same. Well, I mean, we all, we're all materials guys here. We know that's impossible. That's absolutely impossible. So they were over-promising and ended up under-delivering. But part of that under-delivering was that, as you said, the high-range water reducers, but everybody was being introduced to VMAs. And they were like, wait a minute. I, I, don't, I don't know VMA. You're trying to retrain the whole industry. And you got guys that only have two aggregate bins. And you're saying, well, you really shouldn't use 57 stone. You really should use 67 stone. And they're like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I got one bin. You better make it work. And so SEC was doomed because the people who tried to change the industry just didn't understand the industry. You know, I, I remember I was getting a talk from this French guy from Lyon. And he was like, you know, the SEC, it's like, it's like puzzle pieces. And the, the pace factor just brings them and it consolidates under its own way due to the force of gravity. So we're doing our first mix and we're in the back of the lab. And if you guys never been to the Quivis lab, you got to go there. It's still an amazing lab. So anyway, we got this mixer going, you know, it's a, a 3.77 cubic foot capacity mixer, got about a foot and a half in there and it's rolling and you know, it's splashing, you know, and I had figured out if I put my hand in the mixer and if, you know, the, the mix was a certain, you know, point close to my fingers, it was a 24 to a 26 inch spread. And if it was closer, up closer towards my knuckles, it was a 28 to 32 inch spread. So I asked this, this guy who eventually became my boss, I was like, uh, so John Michelle, what do you think this spread is like a 24 to a 26 or maybe a 25? And he looks at me and he goes, don't talk about things you don't know, little boy. <laughs> oh, I wanted to kill. I lost it. Became red and purple at the same time. Uh, no, I, I, Paul, I agree with you. You know, we had that problem literally in Kansas City where we had a concrete sand of 5767. And we made a great SCC in the lab, but once we hit the field and somebody added a little bit of water, paste over there, rock over there, let's use a let's use a VMA. No, oh, just throw just throw a few ounces of a VMA in there, we'll be fine. And it started becoming more and more difficult. So I think with the difference between SCC and 3D printing is that you're putting that ownership, that that figuring out how to teach the industry, train the industry. Not to train anybody here. You got to get the lowest labor, lowest skilled laborer to press a button on an iPad or a smart pad. And the only issue is, are these companies going to be able to meet the demand that the contractors require? Thoughts? I think you just advocated for killing jobs. 
Hey, man. You know, I we used to live next to Amish country. You guys ever go to Amish country when you were kids? Lancaster, Pennsylvania? Live, yeah, um, we live in Pennsylvania. I'm, uh, I'm about 20 miles south of it. Okay, we used to go to Dutch Wonderland. Yeah, absolutely. Drove, I drove by it this morning, literally, on my way here. <laughs> absolutely. You've never been to Miller's or Yoder's to get their all-you-can-eat Amish buffet with the fried chicken? Those Amish folk, they make some of the best buffets in the world. Um, as a kid, we used to go there all the time, and my mom used to go to those plate shops. I don't know if you remember those plate shops. I used to sit in the front of these, like my, my, my sisters had to get these fine china sets. You know, that's, that's what we did in our family. Some of the best china shops in the world. Some of the, you see one, maybe, maybe two of them, right? Like there are going to be some ready mix providers and contractors who are not going to change their ways. But as it turns out, I believe, and hey, I've been proven wrong many times, Whitney will tell you, that our, our construction industry is going through a major paradigm shift. And to get to that point where you push that button, if you look at Icon and what they're doing, they are the closest ones to that, and Cobot, to that push button technology. Well, we love technology here, right? So the whole time we're having this discussion, we're probably really more on your side, but we got, we'd be remiss if we didn't at least uh, speak up for the other side of this conversation with real concerns and real you know, past histories to look at to say, hey, new technology has told us they were going to do all kinds of stuff to reinvent the industry and it, it didn't happen. So it's a good conversation to talk about how this will be different this time. Uh, you were talking about the Indiana Bridge Sticks. Right. Are we able to talk about the actual product that went into that actual name brand product? Can you, what can you share about that and, and educate our audience about what's going on there? Cause I mean, you're talking hundreds of bridges that have already been done. This isn't theory. I mean, the guy's selling it. It's good stuff. So I could tell you one of the bridges or a bridge decking on highway 475 West, uh, the reference mix, and you'll have to forgive me. I don't have the granular skeleton, but the reference mix Mm-hmm. was 658 pounds of uh, Portland cement with a 3% addition of microsilica. You know, I, I, I'm so sorry. I don't have the, the high range water reducer or the, the air content, uh, but the water cement ratio was a 0.42. On the reference, they hit 28 day compressive strength of 5,700 PSI. And what is that? A cement efficiency of 8.7. So on this bridge deck, they took out 78 pounds of powder, of the Portland cement. So this was before they switched over. The the 1Ls are still using that. I think it's a type 1C150. So they went down to 580 on the total powder. They used the E5 Plus at 4 ounces per 100 weight. They use the liquid fly ash, which is another one of the nanosilic products, by, and this is by specification products. They use that at 8 fluid ounces per 100 weight. So total nanosilica was 12 fluid ounces per 100 weight for a 28-day compressive strength of 7,200 PSI and a flexural strength. I want to say that fle- I, I don't have it in front of me this second. I believe the flexural strength was... 1120 PSI at 28 days. Questions? 
one of the things we talked about earlier is that for new technologies have a hard time gaining traction. And we've spoken many times on this show that it is our opinion that new technologies in order to gain traction in the concrete industry or any commodity based industry will succeed much more quickly if it can save cost to the, to the producer. So my question is when you pulled out that sack of cement or nearly a sack of cement, did that offset the cost of uh, this E5 and liquid flash combination? So it, it's going to be somewhere between a three to $8 incremental cost per cubic yard. Um, if you're reducing 78 pounds of powder at 120 to 160 pounds or it's hundreds, 120 to 100, $160 per ton, you are going to have a cost savings there. The, the savings that you also get out of it is you can empty a silo. You don't have to worry about your fresh properties. We've got a bunch of these pond ashes or harvested ashes or these uh, alternative supplementary cementitious materials that claim to be an F-ash. And then you put them in your concrete, it turns your concrete into cotton candy. And I'm trying to be cute and funny, but all of a sudden, I can't hold my slump. My air goes from a 7.5% to a 2.5%. And my my set times, my time to initial and final set, goes from 6 hours to whenever the hell it feels like it. So using the technology, yes, you might be able to gain a, a cost savings. And, you know, working for Lafarge, uh, we had plenty of, of quality control managers who were willing to sell one of their relatives to get a 50 cent cost savings per cubic yard. Mm -hmm. That's a Christmas contract right there, right? When I sell technologies and people expect a cost savings, they don't want 50 cents. They want a minimum of 250 a cubic yard. And then don't forget, there's the difficulty of adding that technology to the back of the ready mix truck because I can have a pulpable bag. Oh, this is easy stuff to use. All you got to do is throw it in the back of the truck, right? Well, what is throwing the back of the truck? I got to have a guy climb up and climb down the ladder. No, no, no. I got to have a guy standing on the catwalk and he's six foot five. He's Joey size and he's wearing a vest at 5 a.m. underneath the mixer over the hopper throwing in pulpable bags. That has a cost to it too. So... You know, I don't want to say that you're going to save $3.50. It might cost you 50 cents. It might cost you 15 cents. But to empty out an F-ash silo, to take your pond ash and make it your pond ash concrete and make it seem like F-ash concrete, because that's something that nobody talks about. If you have no choice, but you've got to use that F-ash. And by the way, 618 is changing. So that's going to allow in more pond ash and harvested ash. I would say within the next six months to a year. I mean, that's what we did last summer. We had this pond ash that was terrible. We used the colloidal silica to make it seem like the F ash that I used to get back in the late 90s or the early 2000s. $3 a yard is not unreasonable. That, you know, people can work with that. That's a number. If you can drill that down to that number, now I think you got a chance. Um... How are they editing it? You talked about the pulpable bags, but... I mean, plumbing it right into your, your batch plant. Um, if you're using a volumetric mixer or if you're using a dry batch plant, 
you know, one of those hooks, you know, wands, you could use it. I mean, shoot, I've even thrown it in five gallon buckets, you know, right at the, you pull a little concrete up on the fins, you pour it on the concrete and you drag it back into the mixer. So, I mean, depending on what the technology or what ready mix provider we're working with, there are some ready mix providers, man, they got a wand that you stick the hose into the tote and plumbed right in. So anyway, we've done all three of those too, but when push comes to shove, if we can put it right through the batch system, I mean, that's ideal. So you're saying that you can, they can use their current command Alcon or Joe Nell or whoever their batch systems with, and it can just run right in right after the water reducers and everything else have had their chance to go in. Right. Um, so can I ask you guys a question? Cause my, my time is running short. Absolutely, man. There's a, uh... You know, there's something that I've been taught since I started in the industry. And I, I started as a mucker's apprentice back in the early 90s. And you know what a mucker's apprentice is? Sounds like a guy who's doing uh, like bricklaying is what it sounds like. I used to get, you know, before school, I used to bring coffees to the job site, donuts. I used to get all the equipment out, the boots off or the boots out. I used to put them in front of the heater and then pull them, you know, set up the trucks and everything. And at the end of the day... I would uh, head over to the job site. I was lucky if I could do some finishing, but then I would clean the tools, go pick up beers. That's how I started in concrete. My girlfriend's dad. What I've been taught in the industry is watch out for snake oil. You know, in so many different ways, snake oil, snake oil, snake oil. I mean, in even working for Lafarge, we had new chemical providers come to our door multiple times a week. Watch out for snake oil. I feel... Now more than ever, the industry is being so flippant, so, I don't know if flippant's the right word. They don't care about checking out the validity of certain technologies. It seems like anybody is willing to try anything. That's what I'm seeing, um, to include some of these pond ashes, these harvested ashes, or some of these other technologies that are put into the back of a ready mix truck. Is that a fair assessment, or do you guys think I'm blowing some smoke? I think it depends. I would say maybe not so much on the chemical side of things. We've said many times on this podcast that you can put anything in concrete. And, <laughs> yeah. and we have a little session here before we bring on our guest. And there's always something like, oh, they're putting like coral in, in concrete now or you know, different kinds of recycled materials and things of that nature. So I think as far as dry materials go, they are getting very creative. Yeah. I think the key to success and in some of these new technologies and that we've seen it too, if we can be as turnkey as we can possibly get to where when that batch man hits a button, he doesn't have to think about it. Like when our customers push a button and they send ActiGel into a mix, they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to think about it. It's just out there and it's getting pumped into concrete. And when we can couple that with being profitable, then that's where we've been successful. I just think that's just the key. If you're saving people money or if you're making the right people money and they can do it without worrying about their batch man or the truck drivers messing it up, then I think that's that's the path you need to take right there. When I came into Lafarge in 2010, the number one thing that they were driving into everyone's head was innovation. We wanted you to come up with some new idea, some new technology, something. And as you're aware of, Mr. Belkowitz, Dr. John Belkowitz, is that the industry is typically 10 years behind and sometimes 20 years behind academia, but really 
10 years behind a proven technology. So I would say that although it seems people are more willing to trust stuff, the ind- the biggest players, the Lafarges, the Wholesomes, the CMEXs, uh, over a decade ago, had a massive push to try and get people to try anything and everything, put everything through its paces, and let's see if we can add value to the company. So those people, those are the guys who are in their 20s and their 30s, who are now in their 30s and 40s in managerial roles, who grew up, it's a generation of guys who grew up with the idea, well, let's try it. Let's see what happens. If it makes it better, it makes it better. So you may be seeing that, and you are in the nitty gritty of that i mean you are deep as deep as you can get into that world in that world right uh, but i think you may be correct because i think that the underlying factor is you have a generation of managers now who are told innovate and you know let's make profit you know it's a it's a swing of the pendulum you remember when we were taught that water is the devil and we yep. went to like 0.28 water i was i was working with mr betts on a high early strength mix, and he had a 0.26 water cement ratio. I was like, dude, what the heck, man? Did you starve in your mix? No, no, we got to make strength. And hey, they blessed, they made strength. But uh, I, I think we're swinging the pendulum in the other, which, hey, there's going to be some awesome benefits. I've got a boogie like a used tissue in nine minutes. I have an exciting concrete story to share with you guys. As you know, Joey asks all of our guests, what is the craziest thing? Uh, you've seen in concrete so uh, take it away there are, are never emergencies with concrete okay, we don't we don't deal with heart patients pregnancies not even helicopter parts you know the veterinarians have more emergencies than us but every once in a while somebody calls you up with something that makes you go what so uh and it's always friday it's always friday at like 4 30 <laughs> in the afternoon hey, hey, hey real quick Anytime they say real quick, nope. Friday afternoon, 4.30, I'm like, oh, shh. What's up? So a buddy of mine runs a concrete plant up in Kalamazoo, and they produce 700,000 cubic yards a year. So they've made concrete. And uh, he said, hey, I've got a quick question for you. What do you think would happen if we accidentally switched up the amount of fly ash and cement. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, like as an experiment? Like, sure. Like, let's, 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 let's hash this out. What would happen in that experiment? He goes, no, no, not an experiment. What if I accidentally put in 15% ordinary Portland cement and 85% of a really good class F fly ash? And I said, well, if it's a driveway, I would tear it out as quickly as possible. I said, if it's anything else, you need to call the owner. He goes, no, 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 but hold on. I put two gallons per cubic yard of a calcium chloride accelerator. So is that going to make up for the calcium that I'm not getting from the OPC or from the Portland City? Which is a pretty, come on, that's a that's an interesting approach. It's clever. Yeah. Um, so let me just tell you about the job real quick. It was an underground facility went three stories underground and the amount of concrete, I'd rather not tell you the amount of concrete to kind of steer you in the way of what the job is. It was, I could say it this way. It was 50% of the top portion 
of this underground facility that went three stories down that had one foot thick walls. And so that means it was 25% of the total concrete. And I can compare this to like a, a, the size of a federal bank vault. So, you know, my buddy asked me, he goes, so all I need to do is make 4,500 by 56 days. Do you think we could make that? And I said, hell no. He goes, well, I knew you were going to say that. So I have a pile of concrete that we're going to core into because we, they didn't realize this until later. So they're going to drill into it. And they ended up getting like 1,100 PSI. You know, some cores made 1,500 PSI. So there was some merit, but the concern was is that there was all this backfill under, you know, 15 feet, 30 or 20 feet, whatever the height was, and that the concrete wouldn't set up and it would fall in. So ended up tearing it out and restarting. It was a multi-million dollar loss and pretty awesome. Golly, that's crazy. Woo. I was kind of hoping you were going to tell me something crazy happened, that calcium chloride like was a miracle or something. <laughs> no, no, it was a miracle. For Lafarge, and they break it like nothing. <laughs> and I, I think the strongest Class C we have was 900 PSI in a cube ever. So uh, yeah. I was like, well, maybe some super reaction happens. <laughs> I, was, I thought you were about to tell us some kind of magical cement miracle. Nothing magical happened. It was terrible. Can I tell one more story? Because I got three minutes left. Hey, you're the one that's got to run, man. Come on. I do. I do. Um, I sent, uh, Paul, I sent you a story or I sent you a video. It was a job site uh, where we were ripping out a portion of the highway and replacing it. It was something like I've never seen in my life. What they did is they they wet saw the slab out and then, and they ripped the slab out in sections. Instead of draining out the water and putting in some blue chip or some subgrade, they just started pouring concrete into these puddles that had 100 to 200 gallons of water in it. And when you see this guy's literally shoving, shoveling water. And at a certain point, he's like, oh, screw it. And I was not on the job. I was, I was at the plant dialing in trucks. I went to the bar and my buddy, you know, who or the customer I was working with came over to the bar and showed me this video. And I might have had a couple of beers at that point, And I just... Came unglued, and then the worst part is the PE had the nerve. Went to the job site, went to the highway the next day, looked down, it was cracked to shit. cracked like a pane of glass. And he looks at me and he says, Something's wrong with your admixture here. <laughs> <laughs> and you looked at him and said, Your water cement ratio is 3.2. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I did something else. I did a few other things. Oh my gosh. That's dude. great, man. All right, gentlemen. I hate to do this. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for coming on here. This is great. You were great. Well, y'all likewise, it's been a pleasure. This uh, podcast is definitely my favorite and I'll be sending you Rich Seishi's, uh Rich Seishi's information. I would talk to him about prescriptive versus performance. That's fantastic. Thank you, John. We'll let you get the call. Thanks a lot, John. That's it. That's all. I want to thank John for being such a fantastic guest on this episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. And want to thank you, the listener, for joining in as well. Between now and our next episode, as always, be sure to check us out daily on our social media platforms. That's YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, where we upload uh, new content to those daily. And tell a friend about the podcast. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And a big thanks to Actigel208 for being the presenting sponsor as well. So until next time, 
y'all take care.